hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Welcome to episode 3 of the Film 89 podcast. My name is Sky, I'm the founder and editor of Film89.co.uk and for this third episode of the podcast things are going to be a little bit different. Every now and again we're going to do what we call a retrospective episode. It's going to eschew the regular format whereby we have a main topic, then a main review and then a top 3. This episode is going to be a discussion entirely about a certain film that me and the two guests love. An older, certainly a classic film and we're going to talk about the themes, the influences, the, the making of the film, the behind the scenes, the eventual release of the film, and how the film is regarded now, amongst other things. Joining me tonight is going to be someone who's new to the podcasting game. Um, he, he's sort of losing his podcasting virginity. It's my good friend, Matt Jenkins. Hi, folks. Uh, thanks for having me as well. Uh, my name is Matt Jenkins, as uh, Sky has just said. My background is in performing arts, where I specialized in directing film and theater. Um, and that's pretty much it for me. I am a massive fan of the film we're about to discuss. Okay, and a very special guest joining us via the medium of Skype all the way from Canada is filmmaker and the host of the Flixwise Canada podcast and a frequent contributor to the Wrong Real podcast, Mr. Martin Kessler. Hello, uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, um, this originally I think Martin doing an episode on the, the film we're going to be talking about was your idea, something we've discussed since, ooh, I think... Uh, yeah. Was it July last year? It's been a long time in the works now. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, enough of the mystery. The film that we're going to be talking about tonight is 1982, John Carpenter's The Thing. It's uh, a film which in itself is a kind of remake of the 1951 film The Thing from Another World. That in itself was an adaptation of the short novella Who Goes There. Since then, that film has had a sort of prequel remake uh, of sorts in 2011, which was also niftily titled The Thing. So I think I'll start with you, Matt. Just take us through how you initially became aware of The, the Thing and you know what your initial thoughts were and the impact it's had on you. Well, for me, uh, The Thing was uh, certainly something I'd known existed. I hadn't watched it, uh, but I was studying. I was a student over here, and I was working on a performance of Grand Guignol Theatre, uh, which is a translation to, to big puppet theatre, but it was a form of French theatre that uh, did very risque things, very uh, gory performances in the theatre. Um, one of my friends I was speaking to about this, trying to find something to show the actors what Grand Guignol was what sort of effects we could look to try and create and he suggested the film to me. I sat down, watched the film with him and was just blown away by pretty much every visual effect they had. Uh, a massive fan of the you know the the physical effects they used uh, made me feel very comfortable with regard to a generation which was coming up to developing a lot of CGI. It was really nice and, and comfortable to feel that there were still physical effects out there that were worthy of, of the way they should be, the way it looks, the way it feels. And I watched this film, blown away, and I was so impressed by it, I decided not to use the footage to show my actors, because it was too good at the time, and I ended up showing them a, a scene from Interview with the Vampire instead uh, at the time. But that was my first experience 
uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. It stuck with me. Uh, some very memorable scenes in there, which I'm sure we're going to discuss at some point here. So just just to put things into a time context, context there, Matt. How old how old were you when you first saw the thing? Uh, I would have been nineteen. So how long ago was that? That was that was two thousand. Yeah. So you saw about two thousand. Yeah. yeah. Martin, what about you? Uh, I was too young when I saw it for the first time, but it, it was still during that uh, VHS era. Uh, and it's a film that I, I think I've owned like on almost every format <laughs> that's sort of existed while I've uh, been alive. So it's um, I've seen it on VHS. I've had different DVDs. I've had uh, different Blu-rays at this point. So uh, it's a film that I found that every couple of years I, I find something a little bit new to appreciate in it. And I, I think it helps that it kind of keeps looking better every time I update it every couple of years. So it, it's a film that's grown a lot in my estimations in my appreciation i always enjoyed it i always liked sci-fi and horror but i found that uh, it's a film that rewards looking at it through a microscope but it's also just massively entertaining in a very easy way so it's a film i i have a lot of admiration and fascination for uh, so yeah it, it's uh, i think become maybe one of my favorite films ever really at this point so so how old would you have been then martin when you first saw the thing it would have been after I'd seen Alien. I, I might have been uh, ten or maybe even younger. I'm I'm not sure now. Yeah, you know, I, I've I've often had to sort of recount the age I was when I saw th- certain films. Usually for um, podcasts, I've been on like the, the the few episodes of Wrong Reel I've done, where um, we're talking about the Alien films in particular, and also films like RoboCop and Predator. You know, those two films in particular, RoboCop and Predator, I could tell you mm-hmm. um, exactly to the month when I saw those films because they were so impactful upon me. Um, that w- would have probably been around, I think, 1989 when I was around about 12. Uh, with The Thing, I'm pretty sure it was maybe a few months after that, or, or possibly 1990. Uh, a friend of mine who I grew up with, and we, we were into all you know the, the same sorts of films, and we're, we're still really good friends today. We were around his house one day. His dad had rented the thing on VHS from the local video store, and you know we put it on. You know we started watching it, and the the one scene that sort of hit me, even though now you know it, it's one of a number of incredibly sort of impactful scenes, was the one after the blood test where Palmer you know reveals himself. Spoiler alert! Uh, you know to be infected, and when his head sort of implodes, uh, and then he he sort of gets up. Then you've got windows stood in front of him, frozen in terror with a flamethrower. And his head splits open like a Venus flytrap. He he grabs hold of windows by the head and just shakes him around like a rag doll. And I think it was at that point where the sort of cumulative effect of how completely fucked up all of these insane visuals had been. You know, like you've got the dog scene. You've got, as I said in, in, in the, the article I wrote about it quite recently, which is, is probably, that, that piece was a labour of love for me. It's something I've been planning to write about the thing for a long time. You know, I just found I was tripping over myself trying to work out which scene was the one that stood out most for me. And I don't think there is one for me now. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe the blood test scene. But going back to, you know, 1989, 1990, however old you know I was then, it was that particular scene where I think it all sank in and hit me. And I was like, holy shit, I have not seen anything like this before. This is gut-wrenching, shocking, visceral. For want of a better term jaw-dropping the film has stuck with me and as i became older and watched it with you know adult sensibilities and sort of analyzed the film the the various themes and the numerous techniques and and just 
basically put the film under the microscope like dozens of times. I've seen the, the thing probably about maybe about 15, 16 times at least. You know, every time I watch the film, even now, there's, there's little uh, nuances and, and new things that I find. And when I, w I watched it most recently, I think back in, I think October, in preparation for the piece I was putting together, there were new little things about the film which I was discovering. It's just a remarkable film. And like you say, there's, there's so much to it. And like all the best films, you can enjoy it on that first viewing. Maybe with a film like The Thing, the, the overriding thing you get from it um, initially is one of shock and some people may be repulsed by it. But I think when you go back and look at the film again and again, it's just it's just infinitely rewarding. You know, for me, not to put a finer point on it, I it's one of my all-time favourite films. It, it's, it's one of the films, one of the few films that achieves as near as to perfection as a film can. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you on that, uh, Sky. One of the things that happens with me every year around Halloween, I'm looking for a good creepy film to put on and it's always the thing so I'm watching it at least once a year whenever I can as a result of what I saw and, and how impactful those things were and that they could they could be done to look that good as well uh, I found the way the visual effects look uh, absolutely stunning and even the movements in there I know a lot of people criticize that it, it may have this fake look about it but it, it suits exactly what the, the story goes into with regard to how this this alien exists and how it how it lives how it reproduces all those things um, came together and, and, and worked um, along with with some of the other things you just mentioned there yeah Martin uh, yeah I agree as well I think what you mentioned about it being hard to pin down a favorite scene or the, the standard image like most films are lucky if they have one iconic image in the entire film you know that that's what we'd call a great film this has maybe maybe a dozen, you know, at, at least like <laughs> there's so many images that are just like burned into my brain forever. And it's hard to say like what the image of the thing is. And I, I think that's fitting considering the, uh, the nature of the creature and of, of the horror of the film, but you know, everything from the, the dog running across this uh, endless snowscape to the uh, Benning's half assimilation with the hands making this horrific face, you know, it, it's a whole, bunch of images that I think are incredibly powerful and upsetting. I, I think that's one of the qualities that I, I think maybe uh, made the thing not, not a huge success when it first came out, but has uh, made me want to revisit it because it's uh, it's such a bleak outlook that the film <laughs> expresses and it, it's uh, full of these upsetting, ambiguous things that I, I think really get under my skin and, and make it horrific in a way that few other horror films can. I, I think it's a film that just doesn't leave my mind because of that. I, I don't know if I've been a little bit traumatized by it, but, you know, I always think, does the ending mean? I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but w what some of these things in the movie say about human nature, I, I find that really powerful, actually, and in a way that, you know, you can compare this to some of the big art house films. You can compare it to Igmar Bergman films. And I think the thing holds up as far as this look into the bleaker side of human nature. I, I find that really powerful. You know, I, I mean, uh, our lack of ability to trust one another in these types of circumstances. I, I think John Carpenter was maybe the perfect director to explore that. And coming at, at this point in his career, this was, you know, maybe, maybe the high note, you know, he was building up momentum with his previous films. And it's just kind of that right confluence of having enough time and resources to make the project that he wanted in enough freedom that I think he made this film that perhaps didn't really land with audiences at the, at the time, but definitely, you know, sticks with you and, and leaves this enormous impression. 
Yeah. You know, there's a couple of things you've mentioned there, which I'd like to go into a bit more detail later on. You say about the ambiguity of the film, that I think there's something mm-hmm. intentional there um, from the from the outset, that there's a lot that is intentionally put into that film that isn't explained, and it's left to the viewer's imagination. Also, you mentioned, you know, John Carpenter. I, I don't think that we're able gonna, we're going to be able to do the thing justice without maybe digging into a little bit of the background of John Carpenter and the things that led up to him making the thing, and then obviously how his career went after that. But just going back before that, the original novella, Who Goes There, John W. Campbell Jr., that was first printed in 1938. Have you actually read that, Martin? Yes. Yeah, it's um, actually prefer the film over the novella. I think you sort of assume sometimes that when you go back and read the original book, it might be better and even more mysterious and evocative. But the the original novella, it's, it's a little bit pulpy, I think, compared to the film. Like, there's a lot more characters, there's a lot more action and excess. And, it, you know, it's a very interesting core concept that obviously that this film sprung from. But, you know, it, it kind of feels like some some cousin of At the Mountains of Badness. It's this sort of little bit pulpy Lovecraftian story. And I, I think there are a number of changes that John Carpenter made in adapting it and uh, Bill Lancaster made in adapting it that I, I think gives the film an edge over the novella. And of course it draws on the um, the Hawks produced version of the story as well, the uh, thing from another world. But uh, I think like John Carpenter probably drew in a number of sources uh, additionally. So, you know, you can look at the roots of the novella and also the uh, Howard Hawks film. I know uh, John Carpenter's a tremendous fan of Howard Hawks, but it's, it's kind of interesting when you start digging into what contributed to this film and how, in a way, like I, I think it's sort of the best version of this story. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys have also read the novella, but you could maybe compare, or if you want. I I, I definitely agree with, with the, the film. I think that's definitely the best version from from what I have taken from the other iterations of it. I know, uh, as as you just said, he's he's had to change things, but all for the better from what I can, I can gather from watching the film and, and seeing... The things that have happened, and even though you do have those uh, references back to the Hawks film, there was, I think, the, the the mention of the creature being a person and potentially still being a person in the costume, but they didn't want to do that. Mm. That that variation is made a huge amount of difference. Yeah, the um, you know, the, my experience with with the the, the not novella, the short story, I I haven't been able to source in preparation for this episode. I read it about. Um, when I was in university, probably around about 90, 1998, I think I actually managed to pick up a, a copy of, of the novella. I can't recall much about it other than it's, there were certainly themes in the novella which carried through into the, the 51 Howard Hawks, Christian Ivy film and the 82 version. But like you say, Martin, it is very pulpy. It's certainly very much of its time. There's certainly evidence. There's a lot of additional stuff that John Carpenter, you know, put in his version that is just a little bit more sort of brings it up to date. It is a little bit more ambiguous, and I think that the most important thing is the nature of the creature itself and how that differs from certainly the the, the 1951 film. The 51 film, again, it's not a film I've seen for about probably about 15 years. Steve Amos, uh, who part of the film 89 crew, he and he, he mentioned on the last episode on episode two the fact that. We we touched briefly on remakes, and he said he's a big fan of both the eighty two version and you know he's a really big fan of the fifty one version. He's a huge fan of fifty sci fi in general, and it is it it's one of his favorite films from that sort of um, period of time. But you know it, it's not a film I'd, I'd be in in much of a rush to go back to, and I certainly think that it, it's evidence for uh, right. the Carpenter version being um, you know one of the the best remakes I've ever seen. 
I think with reference to the source material as well, it takes more with the Carpenter version from that than the, the 51 did. I think that the the fifty one version happens to it happens to also reflect you know the, the the issues that were going on at the time. Mm. Uh, I know the, the Cold War, Cold yeah, War the paranoia, Cold War, the, yeah. the HUAC um, investigations going on in Hollywood. You know the fear of, of the course, Red yeah. Scare. Um, all those things were you know very relevant at that time. It it has that representation. Also, they were limited by by the visual effects. I think although they weren't they weren't bad visual effects by any means. I think it's a standout for that time and for the sort of atomic age science fiction films that we might think of. Although I think science fiction films of that era just didn't get the sort of resources or were taken seriously enough to, I think, really have the kind of impact that they could maybe in following decades. Yeah, I I, I can't help but compare the the fifty one version that you know the thing from another world to other films of his, his time. I just don't mm-hmm. think it holds up as well. Certainly. Byron Haskins, 1953, War of the Worlds. I've, I've watched that film quite recently, and um, I think it's going to be a film that me and Steve are going to be talking about in an upcoming episode. I'm, I'm pretty sure that at some point we're going to do an episode on 50 sci-fi. Now, for me, the, the 53 version of War of the Worlds is a film that today still holds up. It's a film I saw when I was very young. It's, it's probably maybe the, the first film from that era um, from of 50 sci-fi that, that I remember seeing. I, I find it to be a much more polished film than uh, the Howard Hawks film. All right, admittedly, it was, I think it, it had a, a certainly a bigger budget than the Hawks film, but I just think it's a much more tightly crafted, well-made film. It's it's an hour and 25 minutes long, and there's just not a wasted scene in the film. And I just don't think, you know, that the 51 version is as good of, as, as a lot of its peers, really, and a lot of other films from that era. I think there was that experimentation with the sci-fi genre then, though, that was coming out. You were coming out of a, a series of monster movies that have been made prior to and still coming into more monster movies but developing that sci-fi concept even further and i think it's it, it was part of that almost experimental if you will with, with the development moving forward to toward modern sci- sci-fi and from the horror side of things i mean that that was sort of the first real time when there was an effort to make the, these fears rational to ground them in rationality i mean you could argue that uh, frankenstein and in literature and you know maybe in film as well before that but really 1950s all these uh, supernatural ideas were kind of out and I, I find that informs the uh, Carpenter film quite a bit too how grounded in rationality it is you know everything feels like it has some kind of basis in logic in uh, science or biology you know it has some kind of consideration given to these things it, it, you know I find that carries the film a long way to feeling very uh, authentic and i mean he does that with the monster of course the the creature the thing uh by grounding it and he sort of rethinks what the biology is uh, versus the uh the original film and versus the novella uh but i think it's also true of the um, cast he, he works a lot to kind of ground them and give them very distinct motivations and it, it's hard to pick up on I, I think even after the first couple of viewings because uh, they, they can seem kind of similar at first and they can kind of you know it's a little bit overwhelming being in this group of guys initially but you know you read the novella and I, I find the the characterizations are so broad and kind of you know again pulpy like a, it's funny reading on the page when it's like a, you know McCready Man of Bronze and Norris Man of Steel and then you know you see Norris in the film and he's just a guy you know, and he feels like a real guy. And I, I find that grounding of the film, it, it makes 
the very uh, stylized aspects of it, the, the you know, like you said, Grand Guignol type effects, these giant special effects feel all the more effective, I, I think, because it's so deeply rooted in, you know, nothing supernatural, nothing sort of uh, poorly thought out. You know, it, it's something that I think an intelligent person can be terrified by. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and um, you know, you mentioned there about the the cast. Now, mm -hmm. I think it was it was back was it back last year when you did your wrong reel episode about the thing? Yeah, I think earlier in the year, around the time uh, Alien Covenant came. That's out. right. Yeah, yeah. Just just for people who may be interested in how these things come about, at the time, myself and Steve Amos had done uh, an episode of Wrong Reel with James Hancock about Alien Covenant and the Alien films, and I think that was something that Martin would have liked to have done. But at the same time, Martin did an episode about the thing, and I messaged Martin straight away and said, "Shit, Martin, that was on that was on, that was on my wish list. I really wanted to do an episode." And, but then I, li I listened to Martin's episode and I thought, well, do you know, yeah, he's done an absolutely superb job. Him and Jamie have covered all the bases. It, 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 it remains one of my favourite episodes of Wrong Reel. If anyone wants to pick it up and listen to it, it's Wrong Reel 271. So you can just go on wrongreel.com and have a look at the archive there. It's called Getting Assimilated by The Thing with Martin Kessler. A fantastic episode. But that got us talking. And I think in our conversation, we mentioned some of the parallels between The Thing and Alien, the, the, mm -hmm. the original 1979 film, and the fact that you've got this incredibly cliched group of characters in the 51 version. And also, you make reference here to the way they're described in the, in the novella. In the actual film, the 82 version, they're workmanlike, just sort of everyday guys and, and quite a disparate group. And you actually think, well, how the hell did these guys end up working together in the you know in in the ass end of nowhere? The way the characters are just none of them are exceptional. None of them sort of fall under any sort of conventional cliched sort of way that a team of characters is 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 built. And, and I think for me that's something much like Ridley Scott's Alien. The one thing that stands out for me, other than the incredible creature design and and just how you know well made the film is 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 the cast. And the fact that they completely sell the fact that they are who they are in the situation they're in. And at no point do I see them as being anything else other than the characters on screen. You know, I don't see Sigourney Weaver. I don't see Veronica Cartwright. I just see these characters. And it's exactly the same thing with The Thing. Yes. I think it's one of the most well-cast, well-scripted films. And, you know, I think that's another thing that marks it out from the 51 version and then subsequently the 2011 prequel, which, unfortunately, um, as much as I'm a bit of a defender of it to a degree, it does slip into a little bit of a cliched style. Yeah, I think from my perspective, if you're looking at the, the characters as well and the actors performing uh, those roles, uh, from my experience, there's so much that you, you want in terms of freedom as an actor to go in and create. And there's not a huge discussion in regard to the, the backstory of these characters necessarily when you're watching the film. Mm -hmm. So I find that seeing their performances, you need to be drawn into what they're doing uh, to make an investment in any of these characters. And they're doing that. You know, There are moments where these actors are coming in to the scenes and nowhere in those performances do you lose sight of the fact that yeah, they are in minus 60. They've just come in from a studio, realistically, in L.A., yeah. which is roasting hot. You believe, as they enter those scenes, that they are freezing cold, they are tired, they are the people they say are these, as you said, these hard workmen type people. And, and where they come from and what they do, you're, you're buying into that all mm -hmm. the way through and how the rest of the stories unfolds and how it impacts them as well. Even uh, Kurt Russell, who's, you know, the biggest star in the film like most of these actors are not huge names but like you know even Kurt Russell disappears into his role like I think 
out of all the, the roles I've seen him in, this is his most, I don't know, this is probably his least movie star-like, and I mean that as a, as a compliment, you know, he just feels like he fits into this group, he's maybe a little bit of a loner, but I, I find that helps, and it feels so organic the way you kind of start gravitating towards, uh, you know, maybe who's the natural leader in the group, it's either McCready or Childs, how that goes against the uh, artificial structures that are, are in place, you know, like, the actual person who's who's kind of in charge, Gary, you know, he's not a natural leader. Like, I, I like uh, the scene quite a bit where he tries to give up his command, give up his authority. <laughs> at first, he tries to give it to Norris, who, who's um, maybe already the thing at that point, And he just says, oh, I'm, I'm not up to it. But it's interesting to see that contrast between the um, structure, the societal structure of uh, a chain of command versus what kind of happens in a crisis and how it's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily like the, the doctor who's going to be the most logical person or it's not necessarily going to be the um, guy who's um, supervising who's going to be the, the best leader. So but that's one thing I really like about it. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that helps make the, the characters work so well together is the fact that they're all, you know, or, or certainly a large portion of them are written up as um, sort of in you know scientific types. They're, there's doctors, scientists, you know they're there in that research station for a reason, and then you've you've got people like McCready who um, is a helicopter pilot. But I think because first and foremost they're intelligent individuals, it's, it at no point does it really become a pissing contest. Unlike say a film where you've got you know a, a bunch of cowboys holed up in in a fort and they're being surrounded by you know natives and you know at that point then you have the cliched thing of someone tries to assert control over the rest of them and take leadership. I don't think that you have that to the same degree in this film you've got you know characters like Blair who is in a position of authority because of the amount of knowledge he has and, and his ability to sort of work out who this creature is you've got Dr. Copper who you know he's got a certain confidence about him when it comes to going out to the Norwegian base he's the one that volunteers to go out with McCready I think he even supersedes Gary you know he's oh we're not going to go out in this weather and the Doc Copper just says yes we are like uh, that that's the kind of thing I mean where the natural character kind of overrides the, the sort of job positions and I think that helps a lot I, I don't know how much of it comes through the uh, rehearsals of the actors and how much of it comes through the comes from the writing but like you, you get a sense that these are just natural people and that the job descriptions are secondary <laughs> like alien uh alien I, I think in some ways has a bit of an advantage because i think the cast it's only uh, seven people right plus the alien you know this is uh 12 so like it, it does complicate things a little bit more and it means some of these characters don't quite have a, as much of a moment to shine as as an alien but I, I kind of like to how you know especially like in the thick of it you you know especially if you haven't seen the film for a little while and you go back and rewatch you lose track of you know, like oh you know could be could he be the thing could he not you kind of forget where the story goes and you kind of get wrapped up in that suspense of it all over again every every time you watch it yeah and i think the fact that you've got um, a bigger cast of characters is mm -hmm. that's necessary because we we have to have suspicion we have to have more sort of question marks hanging over who could potentially be infected I think if we had, you know, a cast of say seven people like Alien did, I don't think it would be as easy to sort of spread that suspicion around the characters. Mm -hmm. 
and, and I think you know certainly the, the size of the cast is, is just about right. Um, we don't need to know everything about their backgrounds. Um, I, I think actually uh, Bill Lancaster in his original treatment, he actually wrote a background file on each character saying you know where they came from before they got to Outpost 31, you know what their expertise was and how these people all actually came together. So even though we don't actually get told any of that in the film, it just goes to show that even behind the scenes, in Lancaster's mind and in John Carpenter's mind, these characters were fleshed out to a degree that they knew who the characters were more than we did. So then they're able to sort of put them in the right direction, give them the right motivation, make them act in a way which would act, you know, according to the way that Lancaster had written them in that sort of explicit detail, detail which we'd never see. But I think that detail helped Carpenter and Lancaster take the characters in the direction they do in the final film. Yeah, and I think there's this realism to... Uh, this loner aspect of where they are and why they've all ended up there, and that adds this this air of mystery to it. It reminds me of uh, a documentary I watched, a Werner Herzog documentary, um, Encounters at the Edge of the World, which is mm-hmm. about the people that work in, in the, at the South Pole, essentially. Um, and you see this this reasoning behind why they went there and, and their desire to have that distance from the rest of the world for some of them. And that's surprisingly reflected in, in what I see in the performances even today. Like I, I, That's a recent documentary that I watched, not something that, that I'd seen before the movie in the first instance. And I find that that, that reflection is, it adds to it. It gives that feeling of truth to the performances. Yeah. Moving on from the, you know, the original book and the, and the 50s film, let's take a look at Carpenter's career up until that point. This is 1981 where you know, he starts getting involved in, in the making of this film. What, what do we think of his career up until that point? I guess you could probably point out that like from Halloween to the fog to escape from New York, that's such an amazing run up. I always think, I think Assault on Crusade 13, that's a little bit earlier and Dark Star a little bit earlier and you can still sort of see him finding himself but it kind of feels like i think from halloween to the thing it's like four incredible movies in a row and i I think the thing is sort of in a way the the culmination of what he had been working towards in uh, in horror in style in his uh themes after that because i think probably because the thing was a bit of a flop his career became a little bit uh, sidelined and he still had hits you know and he still had popular films you know starman of course a big trouble in little china they live and then you know like gradually later on i, I think his career just seemed to lose lose steam uh you know which is too bad because i i think you know the, the thing especially but he's made a number of incredibly influential great films so I don't know, it, like, it, it's sort of too bad seeing something that is at one point the high point of a director's career and also maybe the worst thing to happen to it. So I don't know. I think from what I can gather as well from the, the when he was doing the thing, um, you end up with this this essence of this was the first real backing for, for uh, a Carpenter-esque um, version of this anyway and I think that backing is one of the things that, that allowed him to do what he did and, and shine with it and yes I think you're absolutely right with regard to how it affected him long term with, with the the lack of success initially in the cinemas and in the theatres of this film so he was up against quite a bit of competition you know yeah, no. Yeah, well, <laughs> at, at, that, at that particular year when it came out, it wasn't like well that particular day. Like I, I think that's the same day Blade Runner came out, and I... IMDb. Blade Runner is in two great Yeah, years, it's so June yeah. June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two. The exact same day the Blade Runner was released. Now, nice. the summer of nineteen eighty two. There's again 
got to drop Wrong Reeling because it is my favourite podcast show after all. They did a fantastic episode recently all about the year that was 1982. And it seems that more than any other year that I can recall, 1982 just had an absolute glut of films which have now been heralded as just all-time classics. Films like Conan the Barbarian, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, the th- probably the main reason for the, the failure of the thing. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Blade Runner. There's just so many great films condensed into a few months uh, release schedule and I just think that being such a bleak film, being a film set primarily in the winter, being um, a horror film, releasing it in the middle of the summer probably wasn't the best idea. Although they do say that uh, films set in wintertime never do well in winter, but uh, maybe they don't do well in summer either. I don't. But even, even the climate, I think there was a recession going on at the time, wasn't there? So yeah, but then you had it is a bleak story, as you said. Yeah, and, uh, all right, and yeah, I, I think certainly in, in times of you know crisis like that, people are going to gravitate more towards you know a, a feel good film like E. T. Like uh, general audiences, they don't like ambiguity and they don't like downbeat miserable endings and this is both i think so like you know of course it's gonna just put people off you know like i I think john carpenter talked before about this idea how horror it's sort of meant to upset and the idea of trying to tie everything into a neat bow and the evil's vanquished in the last five minutes it's maybe a little bit disingenuous and i I think one of the reasons why the thing has found a, a second life and grown in in a general appreciation is for one of the reasons why it was initially not appreciated and that's just because it, it's sort of open-ended and upsetting <laughs> again yeah and you know, i think some films are just never destined to do particularly well on theatrical release blade runner being you know the perfect example mm-hmm. um, a film that isn't action-packed it is fairly slow-paced there's a lot of ambiguity to it and it also benefited from from being re-edited and having different versions come out that sort of gave it a new life yeah it is a different beast in that respect and it wasn't a film that you know it there was a lot of you know behind the scenes issues with Blade Runner, not a particularly happy production. Whereas the thing, as much as it was beset by little setbacks, some you know to do with the weather, others to do with um, these incredibly cutting edge effects. You know the, um, the the Norris on the table with the spider head thing. That actual prosthetic, that whole setup was made with incredibly flammable uh, materials. And on the first take, the whole thing burst into flames. And then, you know, days of, of hard work and setup had to be done and reset for them to shoot the following day. So, you know, there, there were little setbacks like that, but nothing in the same league, I think, as, as the sort of behind the scenes thing that, that, that plagued the production of Blade Runner and sort of, you know, made that, you know, one of the productions from hell. You know, the, the, the Dangerous Days documentary, the making of Blade Runner is, is as easily as fascinating as, as the film itself. Yeah, I think you said the as well the camaraderie between the, the, the even the crew and the cast at the time because it was a an isolated place they're filming. Uh, it was a difficult place to get to to work in, um, and they were reliant on each other for for all of that, you know. And it was a long period of time that they're stuck there with this small group of people just to mm-hmm. just to film these things when they were out on location. Yeah, so just to you know, look at the background of the making of the film, um, I think it was about six months before they actually shot on location in British Columbia. They they sent the crew up when when there was no snow. They they built you know the the Antarctic base as it would become. Then they they retreated and then they went back six months later. And of course, it's all snow covered. So they got the the cast and the crew up there, flew them as far as they could, drove them in the rest of the way on buses. I think that journey itself was fraught with some danger. You know, they did the shoot there in some quite bleak conditions, but then all of the interior stuff was 
shot in Los Angeles in you know searing temperatures of 100 plus degrees Fahrenheit but at no point do you see any seams between what stuff is shot in the studio and what stuff is shot on location yeah and the, I, the performances go alongside that as well yeah you know? exactly because you know in every scene you see you know apart from the ones where they're confined inside you see the icy breath now a lot of that stuff was actually shot in LA so you know they, they would drink an exceptionally hot coffee would, would then make their breath visible on camera you just don't see any of those joins at all and, and i think you know again that's another thing that the film gets right intuition to put the clever backlighting in to highlight that when they're when they're doing that as, yeah. as you were just talking with with regard to the visual style making sure that that was there in place when they were on set in in la uh in roasting hot temperatures trying to shoot this yeah and another thing um martin what, what do you think of the production design in particular i mean the actual outpost 31 itself what are your thoughts on on how that's made I, I mean, it seems very believable to me anyway, like shooting on that location, it, it does feel like it's the bottom of the world, I think. I, I like that a lot. And I think over time, too, you sort of get more used to the the actual geography of the place. Like, I think first couple times you watch it, it just feels like a bunch of rooms. But you start noticing how these places are connected and you start thinking about okay, where's um, Mercredi's shack in relation to the rest of this? And that in conjunction with the visual style, you know, the way things are shot and lit. I mean, one of my favorite images of the film, it's uh, when, when Kurt Russell's character comes back after Knoll's cut his line he thought he was the thing so he cuts the line and leaves him out there and he comes back with the dynamite and he has all this frost all over his beard you know that that makes it feel feel so <laughs> cold uh and like it's stylized and like the the makeup on him like it's just a little bit heightened you know like sometimes you go back and you look actually like you know these blue gel lights and these makeup uh the makeup enhancing like the bags under their eyes you know it's just like a little little exaggerated but in a way that i, I think just makes it that much more expressive like it's a very well calculated when to go for something a, a little bit more stylized that I, I enjoy those moments yeah the, the production design on the film is john lloyd and one of the things that struck me on my recent rewatch is the fact that outpost 31 has just got a very haphazard sort of feel to the way everything it, it seems as if everything was flown in the shack was put up and the contents sort of dumped and just thrown inside, typically like men would usually do. There's there's nothing homely about the place, and, and it's just sort of got this not so much sterile and and cold feel to it. Although you know, obviously that you know cold plays a big part in the film, but it, it it's just all very workmanlike with very little in the way of of creature it, comforts. It reminds me of where I'm from in in Canada. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a mining town. So when you get to work in places like that, they are literally porta cabins that are built for you for you to, to be in, and they're confined. It's not a lot of space, especially when you've got equipment in there, especially if it's science equipment, because it tends to be big and bulky. So, yeah, it, it reveals that very well. And do you think all of that then adds to the, the sense of realism yeah. that Carpenter's for trying me, to achieve? I mean, not I don't know for everyone. Me, personally, uh, having experienced working in those environments, it's it's definitely reflective of the reality of, of, of some of those things. And when you've got a group, like you said, of, of, of all men in there, it's got to reflect that living style as well, I suppose. Yeah. Martin, one of the things you mentioned is about the themes of the film. In in the, the sort of notes that you, you sent us in, in prep for this, one of the things you asked is, what would you say is the theme of the film or, or themes? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can tell you what I think of it. Uh, I, I think there's, you know, number number of ways you can look at it. But one thing I, I was always very disturbed by is how well the creature replicates people 
And to me, what that always said is that uh, there, there's no soul, <laughs> you know, it's sort of a strange takeaway. But like, I, I think in contrast to something like an invasion of the body snatchers, where it's this uh, alien entity imitating a human and you can just kind of tell like there's something off about them. In, in contrast to that, I think what the thing says is that this being that can imitate a human being perfectly it like that that really means perfectly and that means that you know what makes you you and what makes you special is <laughs> not some essential soul it's just like a culmination of biology and chemistry and you know you're just accumulation of matter with a behavior that can be replicated in a way that's impossible to detect uh in, in any sort of personality way or uh you know in that regard and of course, the ending, I think what it says about our inability to trust each other, even what we need to, I, I find that very powerful. How you have this ending that, you know, it comes to the, the two sort of most dependable guys who hate each other the most. And you're not sure if one is the thing or not. And, you know, people have treated the film a little bit like a, a puzzle to be solved or a mystery that one of them must be the thing I'll look for evidence and I think it's sort of purposely ambiguous because you know to me what it says is that it doesn't matter because you can't take that extra step like that the faith in humanity is broken so that you know all they can do is really die and that these two guys who maybe could you know if they're both human help each other could could work together but it's impossible you know that I think what that ending sort of says to me is just why, why humanity is doomed in in sort of a broader existential way so you know like I, I think that packs a lot of punch and I think that's much more interesting than if if it was oh like really he's the the thing because he drank um petrol oil or something like that like people have come up with all these theories to try and describe it but I think the fact that you don't know that you can't know and that all you have to rely on is your your feelings of towards the other person I think like you know this is the ultimate film about otherness and about the the lines we draw between each other as human beings you know, I think that's one of the great things about the film is ultimately, you know, for this fantastical sort of sci-fi premise, it's a film that's very much about human flaws and human limitations. In that regard then, Martin, what would you say is is, is the thing about the film that disturbs you the most about the, the, the whole concept of this creature that perfectly imitates human beings? And as we find out in the film, in the computer simulation that Blair runs, the fact that in 27,000 hours, potentially, this creature could assimilate the entire planet. Aside from that, what is the thing that you, you find most disturbing about this film? I mean, there's stuff I find like very disturbing in a visceral sense, but I, I think like in the subtext that that uh, that it can imitate a person and you can't tell, I think, is the thing I find most disturbing about it. I think as much as... You know, the effects set pieces are very viscerally disturbing. I mean, there are a few things quite as just, you know, uncomfortable to watch as the, the dog's head splitting open and its transformation, you know, things like that. Or the Norris's chest ripping open and there's this giant mouth biting off the hands. I think it's just in the premise, in the very idea of how this creature uh, reproduces and survives that I find upsetting. And in conjunction with that, there, there's also just the feeling that you know, maybe these guys would end up killing each other even if the thing never showed up. You know, they, they like as lived in as it feels and as much as it feels like these guys all know each other, they don't feel friendly really, right? I mean, they're all kind of sick of each other. Like you, you feel that. Yeah, I think they just pretty much tolerate each other, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> sure. It, it certainly feels that way. It feels like uh, they're they're there and that's all they have at that time. And, and the, the way they feel is, is literally a, a tolerance rather than... Uh, mm -hmm. 
than, than a friendship. But I think you, you hit it on the head there for me, Martin, as well, if uh, we're talking of the themes. Uh, you, you probably said it better than I could, but it's this concept of fear of, of something from the outside coming in and not knowing how to deal with that. And humanity struggles with that uh, regularly. And it's that, that portrayal of the person you think you know isn't potentially who they know. And, and where does that go from there? And how do we react when something that we don't understand comes in into our well, lives, I suppose? And I find that poses those questions. The ambiguity is is a disturbing fact, you know? The, the fact that there are so many questions about what's going on, who these people are, why aren't they trusting why aren't they working together, why don't they want to do this? And as you said, toward toward this, the final the final scenes, what is going on with these two characters? What is left for them? Who Who is left, right. essentially? It really you know? rubs your nose in just how worthless our judgment is you know mm, like yeah. uh, that that happens all the time sometimes you you think you know a person or even like uh you know just hearing about oh the, the serial killer talking to people in the neighborhood say oh like, i thought he was such a nice person like you hear stuff like that all the time so i, I think it's not so outrageous that they, they wouldn't be able to tell that there's an alien amongst them in this film and I think that breakdown of, of, of the, the characters between mm-hmm. and the relations between each other is beautifully taken on this, on this journey when you're watching the film. Uh, as you said, you end up with people who you think should be in charge, who aren't in charge, and then someone else has to step up. And this whole, I suppose, dichotomy of, of, of people starts to fall apart, and, and they're not who they appeared to be initially anyway as a result of these things, let alone because there's an alien taking over them. I mean, there's this thing that comes up in uh, Lovecraft's writing a lot where somebody will uh, like lose their mind when they see some alien force or something that's beyond comprehension. I think this is one of the few films that really feels like it, it captures that ability. Like, you know, Blair, when he, he's uh, going through the simulation and he comes to the conclusion that they all have to die and he kind of loses his mind, you really believe that? Or, you know, when the Palmer thing's head splits open like the venus flytrap like you mentioned the way i think it's windows who, who has the flamethrower the way he freezes up feels so believable you know like compared to other horror films where they try to go for similar moments where you have somebody oh they're, they're terrified they freeze up and you're usually like yelling at the screen like do something but this i i feel so much for the characters because it's this like thing that just makes a mockery of biology that you know it, it's so horrific to see it's, it's that element of, as you just said, with the window scene where it was someone that he was getting along with two seconds ago has just become this this literally thing. Mm. Uh, not to, to pun not intended by that at all, but the, it, it becomes this thing. And then all carnage is unleashed with, with mm. the progress of the scene. Uh, and you have the end of windows from that point forward. But it, it, those little bits in there as well, like uh, there's a bit, as you said, where the, the hands get bitten off by the doctor trying to do the uh yeah the, the cpr and, and one of the disturbing moments for me is the separation of the head and and this, this oh. fact that this entity be- mm. can can become a separate cell unto itself and no one's paying attention to this head it almost gets away uh, it's, it's a disturbing thing to see a head grow legs and and walk off you know well i i just had like a thought about that scene the other night when i was prepping because it's uh it's palmer who points it out right the the head creeping away but he's probably already the thing at that point. So like, I, I was wondering if it's the Palmer thing, like sacrificing another part of itself to draw attention away from it. Like, I always think it's interesting. The, uh, the thing itself is very 
strategic in, in how it uh, manipulates people because, or how it manipulates its uh, replicated humans that it, it's uh, impersonating because it, it's always like who draws the least amount of attention to themselves really. And like that, that's what makes the most sense, you know? So it, it's funny when you go back and try to pick out like, okay, like who sabotaged the blood bank? And then you go a little bit further back and during the scene where uh, where uh, Blair's smashing up the radios, Palmer's missing. So you're thinking like, oh, Palmer, you know, he's already the thing at that point. He must have sabotaged the blood bank. But he's kind of one of those guys who sort of forget isn't in the scene. Like both him and Norris, who you, you realize they're the thing at a certain point are sort of inconspicuous compared to some of the other characters. Like usually, you know, the people who draw suspicion like a... Clark, who spends all this time with the dogs, like he turns out to be human. You know, McCready shoots him because he attacks him with the knife, but you know, he turns out to be completely human. And then, you know, the guys like don't have an eye on end up being the thing. So like, I, th I think that's a great little trick of the film is just the people that draw your suspicion probably aren't the creature because the creature's better at <laughs> at hiding itself than, uh, than you think or th than you expect. The whole blood test scene as well, where, where they're looking builds on that even further. And I think when watching it, the decision to put these three people strapped to the same couch is insane in my head. I'm yeah. sitting thinking, why have you done this? Yeah. this you, you, you don't know which one of these people are here, you know which one isn't. They're all strapped next to each other. And that comes through in the in the in the direction, in the in the performances as well. You know, you see that in them. It's fantastic. I like Childs yeah. just like giving McCready a hard time the whole way through. Like, oh, I guess that makes you a murderer, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. he just hates the guy and he hates being there. And, like, I, I like that tension between them. And that scene, the blood scene, it's so well paced because it feels like it happens like one quarter of the way earlier than you expect it to. Like, you think it's going to be the last person or like, you know, second last. But, you know, it's like mid-sentence. It's, you know, that kind of rising tension, falling tension, rising tension, falling, rise. Oh, then it happens. You know, it kind of catches you off guard in this perfect way. I think as far as revealing who the thing is, the blood test, it's maybe the real climax of the film more than the the showdown that follows you know that's the scene that kind of stands out as the climax of this idea of who is the thing and then the rest it, it's a little bit more like hollywood action kind of a climax yeah i agree with that martin i think if there's one one part of the film where things tend to um it, it does sort of slip a little bit into cliche is is just a bit towards the end with the ultimate confrontation between uh mccready and and the what what is called the blair monster mm -hmm. I think it's because you know that like Blair must be the thing at that point because everyone else is human. So like it kind of makes it the least ambiguous part of the film. But at, at what right? I'm going to ask you guys a series of questions now going from the beginning. If you haven't got an answer, that's fine. I haven't got an answer to them all, but it's just purely on, on your own perception. So first off, when you see the dog walking around Outpost 31 and then we see him meet uh, this character in in shadow against the wall who then turns to face of the dog oh have you got any thoughts as to who that character is the, the shadow character yeah no it's it's strange i didn't i wasn't sitting there thinking who's in the room i was sitting there thinking what is this dog looking for because it, 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 presumably if you again if you've never seen this film well i think if if you if you've not seen the thing turn this off straight away <laughs> this this episode is aimed squarely at people who've seen the thing we have not held back on spoilers that is not Fair what enough. these retrospectives are going to be about okay but no, I think, yeah, I, I've never sat there and questioned who it was. I, in my head, I may have had an inkling that it may have been Bennings. I don't know. I, I've never really questioned who exactly it was. 
See, I've always thought, given the shape of the silhouette, I've always thought that it was Windows because the actual character seems to have that big bouffant hair and he looks a little bit like Thomas yeah. Waits. Now, apparently, the person who played the Shadow was a member of the crew. So <laughs> Carpet has purposely chosen someone who wasn't meant to represent any of them. And again, that increases the ambiguity. But Martin, have you got any thoughts as to who it might have been? Sure. I think you can actually kind of get close to figuring out who it is because, I mean, you know from the silhouette, even though you can't take it as literally representative of who it is, like it's meant to be just a little bit vague. Like, you, you know, it's not Childs because they have hair, you know, and it's probably not Blair from the build. Um, you know, it's not Dolls because he's assimilated by the Blair thing at the end. You know, it's not Gary because he's assimilated by the Blair thing at the end. Windows gets killed. Clark's human. Fuchs gets set on fire. Doc was human. Bennings is assimilated by the, the dead bodies they bring back from the Norwegian site. So that means it's either Norris or Palmer, which makes sense because you know those guys end up being revealed to be the thing. So I think you can sort of go back and look. It might make, like, you know, if you want to go by the silhouette, I think probably Palmer makes makes more sense. Yeah, yeah Martin, yeah, I, th I think, yeah, I think Palmer. I think throughout the film, Palmer is one of the ones that sort of stays in the background um, from early on. As if, like you say, he is trying to just be the one to draw the least amount of attention to himself. So I think from that point of view there, you're right. And if, if it is anyone, it probably is Palmer. But again, this is all completely open to individual interpretation. And one sure. of the things I think it makes just such a great story. As you said, I never sat there and thought into that scene that much prior to that scene. They're playing poker, aren't they, I do believe? Or yeah. the dog hits hits them under the table and then he goes and puts the dog away. But yeah, yeah and I think that's why, I don't know, why I was haven't really paid that much attention mm. yeah, to that. So, the, the next one. When they get the idea that they can find out potentially who's infected by testing the blood, they then go to the fridge where there are samples of blood held in storage and find that they've been sabotaged. Who do we think is the one most, most likely responsible for sabotaging the blood? Bearing in mind that only two of them, I believe, had access to, that, uh, to the key that opens that. Um, I think one of them was Gary, the other one was Doc, I believe. Yeah. Can I go first? Or? Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay, I think it was Palmer, again, because right before Bennings gets assimilated, he's talking to Windows, and Windows says he's going to go borrow the keys from Gary. So he comes back, and when he sees the Bennings, you hear the sound effect of the keys dropping. So that means the keys were in the room. So it was probably uh, one when they first chased after the Bennings thing, and then right after that when they say, where's, where's Blair, and they go back in, and Palmer's missing, so that means he would have had enough time to pick up the keys, sabotage the blood, and then somehow get them back to Gary. And either Gary, I don't know if he doesn't want to fess up to him lending them away, or if he forgets because it seems like such an inconsequential thing until after the fact, but I'm pretty sure it's Palmer just by, again, process of uh, elimination. Matt? Yeah, I would, I would go along with that as well. I mean... I think you look at Gary at the point where he's he's just he's sort of lost it, hasn't he? Yeah. He just wants someone else to, to be dealing with the situation instead of him, uh, and not be in it and, and pass pass the, the responsibility over um, in the following scenes. So I think it makes more sense that it would would be the Palmer side of it. I don't know. What what do you think, Sky? I'll be honest. I haven't got a fucking clue. <laughs> <laughs> I've I, I'm 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 definitely fixed on. Uh, I've got a rough idea as to who. The, the mm -hmm. dog is going after initially. And I've got a very specific idea as to the who's who at the very end. The blood has always baffled me. They make a point of saying that, you know, only Gary and, and Doc have got the keys. So they're sort of leading us towards who's got it. But that doesn't mean definitively that they are the ones that have been in sole control of those keys. Like like yeah, it could, I think it's a red Gary's herring. loose with those keys, so... Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 
because Windows definitely had them. So yeah, I think this that's the beauty of the film that it is, again is all it's open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. There is no particular right or wrong answer about it. It's it's dark, isn't it? As well, I, I'm just thinking about the creature, you know, thinking about as you said, Martin, who who he's going for, and being very selective and and choosing when and where to well, make the, the commitments to those it, changes. It's so good at disseminating paranoia and tension in between the lines of the group to keep them from being unified. Like, that that's another great thing. Like, again, if Palmer is the thing for the majority of the film, you know, then you look back and, like, when he's talking about, oh, the, oh, you know, wacky aliens, like the chariot of the gods, man, like... I, you know, he's doing it maybe just to discredit the idea and keep them from going on on the right track of figuring out what it is. And then, like, you know, there's the scene where uh, McCready comes back and Childs, he's going to do the smart thing by, you know, because he thinks he's the thing at that point. He's just going to leave McCready outside to freeze. But both Norris and Palmer are kind of egging him on, like, burn him, burn, burn him, which seems like a little bit out of character for those guys. But, like, I, I think it's on purpose that, you know, if they're the thing, they want Childs to kill McCready. And then when it turns into that, you know, little bit of a standoff between McCready with the, the dynamite and everyone else, that's when the Norris thing has the heart attack. And I think either it replicated uh, Norris so well that, uh, you know, the body had a heart attack, but... I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Like, I, I kind of think it's maybe a strategic choice to diffuse that situation. You know, like there's this chess motif going on throughout the film I really like where you get the sense that the thing, you know, okay, in this scene, I'm going to sacrifice a pawn to keep from uh, losing my my king, you know, like it, it, it's willing to sacrifice a piece to stay in the shadows or, you know, to stay undercover. So, like, that's one thing I find really interesting and insidious about it, I guess. Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, that's the nature of this creature that we're dealing with. This this creature could, you know, have a mass of, of uh, 100 tons or it could just be a couple of grams and it would still be as equally dangerous to us as the human race, whether there was loads of it or just a little amount, because that little amount could assimilate more and more. It's, and it's, you it's know, satellite from its own body. Isn't yeah, it? It, it's, it's just one cell. For me, we, we talk about the things that I find most disturbing about the, the 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 film, and for me, it's the actual concept of this creature: the fact mm-hmm. that the smallest amount could you know get into your bloodstream. It could you know it could. However, that this thing can transmit its own particulate matter to you i would imagine if it's a very small amount it's going to take a lot longer to assimilate you or if it's you know a a fully grown infected creature it could as we see later on in the film practically absorb you there and then and it's that thing of again we're saying the word the thing a lot but it's the only way to describe it it is a thing it is Mm -hmm. it's beyond anything that we've got any other sort of accurate frame of reference to describe and for me that is the thing that again <laughs> I'm annoying myself now, but this stands out the most as the most unique aspect of this piece of creature design, mm-hmm. and the the part of the film I'm not going to say the thing, the part of the <laughs> film that I find most disturbing is the actual concept of the creature itself. That makes me think of a question I, I wanted to ask you guys. Do you think Blair is assimilated before or after he's put in the shack, and maybe how he's assimilated? Can I go first? Sure. Yeah. I definitely think it's after he has his little breakdown where he smashes up the communication equipment because at that point, I think, he's either being incredibly scientific and logical and thinking that I have to isolate this creature here now in order to save the human race. Mm-hmm. Or 
if he is the creature, and again, this is something I'm making up on the fly now, he's being extremely clever and saying, hang on, if I sabotage things and, and these guys could overwhelm me, they could wipe me out. Because at that point, we don't know how many of them are infected. It could at that point just be, say, Blair and Palmer. Mm-hmm. Maybe now if I just mess things up and leave these guys in ice, invariably what I've learned about these humans in my contact with them, with the Norwegians and now with the, the Americans, someone will come and rescue them or they will send someone out, they'll retrieve the bodies, take me back to a populated area and then I can do the damage. That's one possibility. But at that point, I think that is Blair. And then when they drug him and put him in the shack, at some point afterwards, because you can still access his, his shack with hatch on the door, Someone could quite easily go up there, extend a tentacle through, grab hold of him, infect him, and then the work is done. That's the way I, or, uh, I perceived it was after yeah. the after mm-hmm. the shack scenario as well. I'll say it similarly, but yeah. I mean, not even with a tentacle, because they mentioned that maybe even a small amount of tissue, like in food, could potentially infect somebody. And it's interesting that they put that line in the film when they mentioned we should prepare our own meals, because like that doesn't seem to pay off unless maybe it does and it's just not explicitly stated. So if somebody feeds Blair while he's off of that shack, you know, he could be assimilated that way. There was a bottle of vodka they put there, wasn't there? Right. I, well, like, I was wondering, because people always assume that McCready's, maybe maybe not always, but, like, I know a lot of people who assume McCready's human in the final scene, but I'd wondered about that bottle, because isn't that the same bottle that he gives to Blair? You know, that that seems a little bit suspicious that maybe, <laughs> and that's the one that he gives to Childs at the he very end. Yeah, that's what I was thinking then, that, that bit at the end. Too many questions. It, there is. <laughs> and look, there, I think, let, let's talk about that ending. So, for, for people who may not be as refreshed on the film as we are, at the end of the film, the only two characters left are McCready, who is you know he's the viewer, he's he's us, he he's the one that is taking us through the film, and he's the the main protagonist. You've got Charles, um, a character who's obviously locked heads with McCready quite a bit, and there's a certain a lot of antagonism there between those. But Charles has been away from you know the sort of main action set piece towards the end, and then he's conveniently appeared at the end. You know they sit down in the snow. They both realize that in a couple of hours, the heat from the explosions and the fire will die down and we'll be back in sub-zero temperatures. And both of them, if they're human, will perish. But obviously, they both acknowledge the fact that one of them could be infected. So obviously, you've got that you know, that classic ending of why don't we just sit here for a while, see what happens. What, what is your take, Martin, on who, if any of them, are infected at the end? It's fun to watch it sort of with different interpretations in mind but I, I think the way I feel about it we've discussed this before off air but sort of feel like they're both human in that final scene that's kind of my my gut reaction I have because, an ally no no that's finally oh I'm there I'm there you got two three for three because <laughs> I, I think like to me that that's sort of the most interesting take anyway that you know they're, they're both human and they could potentially both survive but it's just they can't take that risk and you know at their point the their duty becomes to freeze into the ice and you know the thing perhaps if one of them is the thing then it would kind of go back to you know the norwegian camp where like it wipes out everyone but it kind of ends in a stalemate with just like a you know one entity getting away and perhaps that's the same even for the the spaceship that the thing comes from like i always had the sort of impression that it wasn't the thing's spaceship that it perhaps got on board and you know consumed its crew and that it crashed maybe in an attempt to uh, keep it from spreading and that that's, you know, when it they find the thing's body in the ice, it's already outside of the spaceship. So like it was trying to escape, you know, so like you, you wonder if maybe that's what the thing wants is, hey, I can't get back to humanity. I can't win today, but I can free. So, you know, again, going back to the chess motif, maybe it's like a stalemate, you know, you have the black king, white king, neither one can win. But you know, I, I do sort of feel like 
child story checks out because Blair was running around the camp and, you know, his one job was to, you know, if you saw Blair burn him, kill him, you know, so like if you ran out and got lost in the snow, like to him, McCready's as suspicious, you know, coming back being the only one out of that group of guys who who survived, you know, even though they outnumbered Blair three to one, like, you know, for a child, that's completely suspicious too. So I think you have these two guys who just, you know, like what they say, oh, if we have any surprises for each other, I don't think we're in any shape to do anything about it. Like they kind of know that each one could be the thing. But at that point, they're so exhausted that all they can really do is just say, well, let's let's sit here and die, basically. Basically, that's that's how I take it. I mean, I'd, I'd agree with with that from my perspective. But if if you're saying I have to choose one that that is the thing, no, you're not. No, I if, oh, no, okay. no. My, I, my I, personal I, position is is that that they're yeah, both human. At that that's, that's what I'm saying. You know, one one or or if any or both. But as you said, you can look at the question of the the alcohol bottle if you want to at the end. Mm-hmm. If if you want to look at that yeah, question, which I, which we were just discussing. But if you want to look at that, where Kurt Russell just gives his cheeky grin after passing passing the bottle over, and then the line comes, let's just wait here for a while, and it, it sort of concludes. Yeah, I think, I think in my personal opinion, that they were both human at that point. For, yeah, for me, that's, that's the most satisfying ending, because we know that the human race has been saved if they're both human, or there's a fair chance that it has. You know, there, there could still be matter elsewhere on the camp that has survived. But let's just assume that they, they've, they've done their job and they've, they've destroyed this creature in that huge fireball of an explosion if they have saved the day great but you also get that bleak ending that sort of apocalyptic ending of the fact that in order to save the human race you and i now have to sacrifice ourselves because we just can't take that risk and yeah. mm-hmm. no there, there probably would be no way that they could reasonably survive the the whole um, outpost has been blown to hell they, you know, they will invariably die because help will be days or, or weeks months away, away yeah. or months <laughs> away yeah this is antarctica you know, we don't know how far into Antarctica, but it's certainly not going to be coming um, in time to save them because in a day or two, they both will be dead. They already look like popsicles by the end yeah. of it as well, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, and, I, you know, I think that for me is the most satisfying ending because if it was invariably happy and they got rescued, you'd always have that sort of thing of, mm, yeah, well, one of them still could be infected and now they're being taken back to the mainland. It's a perfect ending that they're both human and they both sacrifice themselves. But again, it's and, always good to question. Yeah, it's always good to question. <laughs> good and to any question. version will work. <laughs> Apart from, I think, I don't see, if you follow the film's internal logic, I don't think it makes much sense that MacReady is the thing because he does everything he can as mm-hmm. the protagonist to stop mm-hmm. this creature. I think the film is going against its own self imposed, extremely tightly yes. written logic if MacReady is infected. And same for Childs. Like, Childs has a flamethrower on him. You sort of feel like if he was the thing, he could just roast McCready at that point. But Childs generally seems unsure when he encounters McCready. You know, he said, like, I forget what the line is exactly. He said, you know, were you the only one? And McCready's, like, equally suspicious, saying not the only one. Like, you know, there... I think if Childs was the thing, he wouldn't have any reason to be suspicious at that point, And he wouldn't have any reason to hold back from trying to kill McCready. But... You know, you'll, you'll no, never be I, sure. I, I think you're right with that. I, I can't see any logical reason, even from, from the characters, if, it, if especially if this thing is sentient to the point where it's able to manipulate and plan and, and, and consider all these things. Um, and the characters know they're the thing when they're there, because I know that's a question that often comes up as well. Mm-hmm. Do you know you're the thing after you've been infected by this thing? Well, and then if uh, if you wanted to just for fun read it as they're both the thing, you know, that that's sort of interesting too. this being having a conversation with itself and saying like, well, you know, what are we going to do? Let's maybe we should just freeze and somebody will come pick us up. Like, yeah, I, I think somebody could do a reading like that, even though I think that's probably the weakest of the potential ways to look at the film. There's nothing else I can do. 
Just wait. RJ McCready, helicopter pilot, U.S. Outpost number 31. Yeah, so guys, we've pretty much covered, you know, up right until the ending of the film there, and this would be probably a perfect place to wrap things up. But this is one of the greatest films of all time, and there is so much more to dig into. This episode is not going to die, you know, it's going to be like the thing, it's going to be hard to kill. There's so much more to cover. That wasn't the end of, of the film's story. The, the film was released, it, it was a flop, it was critically mauled. Some of the reviews it had, if you go back and read them now, are just ridiculous. They, they Alien just, um, on Ice, yeah. Alien on Ice. And you just think, they just simply didn't get the film. And I don't think um, at the time Roger Ebert um, got the film the, either. The did concept he? and the story is quite ahead of its time. In yeah, I think to, so. To how it works as well. So, you know, the film was a, was a failure, but then it grew, much like Blade Runner did, an extremely strong following on VHS. And it, it's just sort of snowballed from there. Unfortunately, because the film was such a failure... And, and John Carpenter knows that it, it is his best film. I really do think that from that point onwards, he sort of moved away from bigger budget studio things. And he, you know, again, on Big Trouble in Little China, he had some issues because Fox completely fucked him over on that film. They weren't expecting the film that he was making to be the product that he placed in front of them. You know, he, he wanted to make an enjoyable sort of homage to martial arts films. They wanted a sort of, you know, high concept action film. And because he didn't, present exactly what they wanted to him effectively they buried that film in the marketing the film was poorly marketed internationally as well as in the states now i think a combination of what happened to him on the thing which then led to him making um, a far more family-friendly film in starman yeah i think in in yeah. 1984 as probably as a sort of a reaction to the fact that the thing had fared so badly against a film like et he then makes starman he then has further troubles with a studio and a, and a, you know, a big studio on Big Trouble in Little China. I think from that point onwards, because if you look at 1988's Day Live, John Carpenter actually took half the budget in order to retain complete directorial control and to have final cut. Um, I think off the top of my head, he was, say, say the budget that he was initially offered was 8 million. He took 4 million in order to retain final cut on Day Live. Mm -hmm. So I think by that point, it's telling you a lot about the place that John Carpenter's found himself in. Well, I think the interference from anyone on someone someone's project is is never necessarily welcome either. I mean, he's he's already done these films. He's established the way he does things, and to have this, as you said, uh, external force burying something he's done is is going to kill any chance of of potentially doing more if they want to you know and it was it was fox wasn't it you said or yeah it was yeah. yeah it was um with big trouble in little china that was fox and then um it, not, it, not it, someone you want to try and bury you is it? No, no that's right that's right <laughs> martin what's your take on how carpenter's career went following the thing i i think like again there's still noteworthy films but like you know even you look at the um the thing as part of that uh so-called apocalypse trilogy he john carpenter calls it his apocalypse trilogy yeah, the, prince yeah. of darkness and in the, in the mouth, mouth of madness, madness. Yeah. i i think like i like in the mouth of madness but i think the thing is easily by far the the strongest of the three like prince of darkness it's kind of like half a great film <laughs> I, I think you know you still see little bits of greatness and fantastic ideas that things come up in his films but it's just like almost never the whole package like maybe the closest you get is 
something like they live but that that's so much more of a tongue-in-cheek satirical kind of a film you know like it just doesn't have that grounded tone and it's not horrific in the way that the thing is you know it's definitely like a film that's permeated pop culture and i i think john carpenter is more than secured his his place in film history even though like he kind of keeps being treated badly like even today you know you have people remaking his stuff doing homages to his stuff and like still not really giving him his due you know on one hand it, it's sort of too bad but most filmmakers who have their great films reevaluated like usually it's not in their lifetime like at least he got to at least he's lived to see people really appreciate and adore the thing and a, a number of his other films i forget where christine must be in there somewhere right that's another one he did right uh, christine i believe was 1982 uh, no sorry it, the thing was 82 christine was 1983 okay so that, that was almost right after like christine on one hand like it, it's a very good movie but like it, i think it just doesn't feel nearly as strong and it, like as a project it doesn't let carpenter play to his strengths as a filmmaker like one thing i really love in the thing is just the immediacy you know that comes back a little bit in prince of darkness but it, it's like you really feel these characters scrambling to stop the end of the world. You know, we have to kill this thing now. We're tired. We're running out of time. Every minute that we waste, it, it's got maybe a little bit more of an edge. Like Christine takes place over like months and months and has this sort of like languidity to it. You know, like even a Escape from New York, like I, I think that's a fantastic film. But like, again, it's, it's a very short amount of time. So I, I think that's one thing that Carpenter always does well is working with a story that takes place over a very short amount of time with like a very hard deadline within the narrative and everything and, comes together with the thing as well doesn't it? i mean everything yeah everything comes together absolutely everything that you performances the the mm -hmm. cinematography the the editing visual effects the 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 score everything that's put in there works to mm -hmm. making this this masterpiece i remember as i said the first time i saw it I hadn't seen anything like that when when you see the first set of visual effects. You know? Yeah, what one thing that you know, I can't believe we've actually um, you know we've, we're well into nearly an hour and twenty five now. We've not actually gone into that much detail about the effects. We've we've said how great they are. Let, let, let's talk about Rob Bottin's practical effects. Yeah, I, I think visually it it has an impact on me because it's something I hadn't seen, and my brain was trying to process what I'm looking at in the first instance where this creature is got parts of all these other things, all these other creatures, all these, the dog, this, what, whatever these tentacles are that are shooting out, eyeballs in random places. And it, it's so impactful. I sat there and I didn't know what I was looking at. And I didn't know what to make of it. There was a little shock in me watching it to wonder what's going on, what is happening. So yeah, Rob Bottin, who is, you know, that he's responsible for these, as um, Matt has said, shocking effects. He, I think he was 23 years old in 1982 when he, he, he approached John Carpenter and he wanted the gig on the thing. He had studied under uh, the special effects master Rick Baker, but he was looking for his breakout film. Um, I think a few months passed and then Carpenter contacted Botine and said, do you know what? Because uh, I think he was, he was trying to keep things, you know, at a reasonable budget. He brought him on board and as much as I don't think they had the sort of, it, it wasn't ideal circumstances under which to be making your first film and i know the boat team by the end of it was like a physical wreck and yeah. they also you know they had to bring in and um, very kindly stan winston came in purely just to alleviate a lot of the pressure i think from mostly Boutine. on the uh, the dog on. thing yeah yeah there was there's, there's one portion of when you see the film with the the, the dog creature there's one actual portion of the dog uh, which if, if you're watching the, the behind the scenes material you see that stan winston studio was responsible for creating and you've also got the stop motion uh, blair monster at the end a brief mm -hmm. shot of that yeah. i think stan winston might have had a hand in that 
Okay. I, guess, I, I think that one stop motion bit, it's maybe the weakest effect in the film. It certainly is. Yeah. I, I yeah. think like that's stop motion. You know, on one hand, it might look more real than a lot of digital effects, but just the motion, especially like trying to capture organic motion, it, it's not always that effective. Like Robocop, I, I find the stop motion works really well for the Ed 209 and things like that because it moves in a robotic way. But for something that's this like tentacle moving thing to have kind of a, a janky motion to it doesn't work quite as well. But the vast majority of the effects, I don't have to uh, suspend my disbelief at all. It just feels completely real and present. And, that you know, that adds to how horrific it is, of course. And I, I think like, especially now where visual effects are, where it's almost all digital you just sort of have to suspend your disbelief on a regular basis but the thing the fact that it's something physical that the actors can interact with you know it's something captured on the same camera on the same film you know it, it adds so much to the uh, I don't know, the the verisimilitude of this universe that carpenter created within the film carpenter and botine had worked together before in 1980 on the fog okay uh, botine actually plays the character of blake the the main pirate but oh. <laughs> uh, you know, if the, the the makeup in the fog, it it's all shrouded in darkness. You don't see it in much detail at all. And I don't think at the time maybe Carpenter thought that Botine would be capable of producing the sort of high concept effects that they were planning on doing. You know, when he initially approached him, but obviously he was the right guy for the job, as he later proved um, on his work on on my personal favorite film, Robocop, and mm-hmm. then Paul Verhoeven's nineteen ninety film Total Recall. You know, another Verhoeven film. Botine's effects work in in both of those films is just incredible. Well, it, it stands the the testament when you watch it, and there are moments that still make you cringe. Looking at these effects now, even though it's up against, as you you mentioned, all these CGI effects. These these, but, these. yeah, I I always I always think that the the best special effects are a mix of model practical makeup and and CGI in 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 the right balance. Yeah, if you look at a film like Starship Troopers. <laughs> You've got practical effects, model work, CG for the bugs. And CG that I, I still think holds up to today. It like does, it does, yeah. yeah. I, I think people have this sort of misunderstanding of how to create a good digital effect where it, it's purely based on the progression of technology that you can render more texture. You know, like it, it's purely a technical progression. But I think it was maybe in the audio commentary of special features on Starship Troopers where Paul Verhoeven talked about how you have to understand artistic concepts. Like you have to understand perspective and how lighting affects the subject and how motion, you know, how, how to create like an authentic sense of weight, you know. So I, I think that's one reason why the effects in Starship Troopers hold up so well. And I don't, you, you've both seen the Thing prequel, right? Where it's all, I think we're coming to that. We, but, we'll, um, we'll, we'll come to that now, yeah. You know, like that that's really interesting to contrast with this because those don't do much for me, the, the digital effects there. You know, so like I think especially when you're trying to express human tissue, flesh, like to, to do that digitally, it, it's so difficult because digitally it's, I think, better creating effects that break our, our feeling of reality instead of enforce it. So, you know, the thing when you're watching this tissue rip, like when the Norris's head's ripping itself off and escaping and... like you know it's incredibly horrific seeing like the the pustule kind of like bursts and things under like there's some element of spontaneity by like okay we're just putting this tissue together and we're gonna rip it and see what happens like even the way the actors perform when they're cutting cutting the 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 prosthetic 
oh, creatures. I, I love that apart. You know, <laughs> like the the scientist just being like, "Oh my god!" Like he's so he's so selling that weird autopsy creature. The the you know where the faces are fused or splitting apart, stuff like that. Like it, it's so good, and especially in conjunction with Dean Kundi's cinematography. Like I, I think they said on set, Rob Bottini was like the only special effects person ever who would keep asking them to show less of his work. No, no, hide it in shadow more. No, no, like, don't don't show too much of it. You know, so, like, I think you're always just seeing the right amount. Like, maybe that effect of the, the spider legs crawling, growing out of the head wouldn't be anywhere near as effective if it was sort of bright, even lighting. But the fact that it's hidden shadow and you just get enough of it to to give you an impression and, you know, especially, like, with the sound effects, too, it, it all sells this effect as real. Yeah, so, you know, I just wanted to make sure we didn't skip over that most important part of this film. So, as you said, Martin, 2011, there is a... And, and just so people are clear, the 2011 version of The Thing, even though it shares exactly the same name, which I think is... I, I do like that. It's, it's um, it, it fits with me. I, I like it. It's actually a prequel. It portrays the events in the Norwegian camp. And we see, obviously, the, the tail end of that in the 1982 film. Guys, what, what are your thoughts on the 2011 prequel? It's an admirable effort. It's a, like it's not a bad film. I I don't think it's just sort of always going to be in the the carpenter's shadow and like on a conceptual level. I think like there's nothing in that film that comes anywhere near to how scary it is going through the aftermath of the Norwegian camp in the Carpenter film and wondering what happened and trying to put it together in your imagination. I think it's about as good a film as you could hope prequel to the thing would be. Maybe narrative-wise, although like I think there are some shortcomings maybe in the effects and maybe some other aspects of the film. But as far as trying to fit another film onto the Carpenter film, you know, I think as far as what could have been done either with a sequel or with the, you know, whatever, like I, I think that's probably the best approach that anyone could have come up with saying, well, let's go back to that Norwegian camp. Yeah, I think I, I'd agree in terms of uh, I, I enjoyed the prequel, I'm not going to lie. I enjoyed certain aspects that they, mm -hmm. they covered in terms of story and linking the two. I thought that worked really well, but visually, with the visual effects, as you said, there's something just not the same when when I watched it. I think you just touched touched on it when you said, you know, it's so hard to do the flesh ripping open and in, in CG to have those effects looking the same. And even the way the things moved uh, with, with the tentacles coming out, it all seemed completely different to the to the initial feel and vibe of, of Botine's prosthetics and, and puppetry, animatronics, whatever, whatever was used, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, this is something I touched on in the article I wrote and something that I don't think really is common knowledge other than for people who've watched the behind-the-scenes uh, features on The Thing 2011 uh, Blu-ray. Those CGI effects, or primarily CGI effects that we see in the final film, were actually all done practically beforehand. Yes. And for reasons which I still don't understand... The studio stepped in. Maybe, you know, in, in the rough versions that we see, they didn't translate well to a final cut and didn't polish up very well. But the studio just made them go back and do everything in CGI. Now, as much as I would have kicked the budget up a hell of a lot, I don't think the studio had the faith in practical effect, which which just baffles me. You know, the, the eventual budget of that film was $38 million, which, you know, back in 2011, that is you know a reasonably low-budget film, certainly for a science fiction film. But unfortunately, that film had a worldwide gross of 31 million, so it's actually 
it's a flop. You know, they've lost right. seven million, and not factoring into account the the marketing costs on top of that, they've actually made a hell of a loss on that, which I think is unfortunate because, as you said, Martin, it's an admirable effort. The film's adherence to continuity is much better than any uh, other prequel or sequel I think I've seen. Yeah. Where you see in the 1982 version where Doc and McCready go to the Norwegian outpost, you see little things like there's an axe in a, in a wall or a door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then if you watch the 2011 version, you see that exact same axe. Joel Edgerton is trying to um, attack one of these offshoots of the thing. As it crawls up onto a wall, he puts the axe in it and kills it. So, you know, it's small details like that. I was watching the film. And thinking, I'm just completely amazed by this, the lavish adherence to continuity. But then you get to the end, and there was one thing that the film had missed out. And that was when, uh, in the 82 version, when they see the guy uh, near the radio equipment, and he's there with, he's got a cutthroat razor, he's cut his wrists, and he's cut his throat. And I thought, they completely forgot that. Lo and behold, there's a post-credit scene of the guy going to the radio. And then I thought, right, you've got me. <laughs> that alone is going to earn this film an extra point. You could watch them in sequence and pick up on all those things, you know, mm-hmm. if if you wanted to as well. Yeah, but you know, I think certainly the film doesn't get the credit it deserves. Yes, it's it's not a patch on the original, but it's going up against the perfect film. You know, there are certain films, certainly of our generation, I think. You know, you could you can take um, a film like The Wages of Fear. You can remake that, like William Friedkin did with Sorcerer, and he's he's made a a, a remake that for me is certainly worthy. Mm-hmm. But then if you're going to remake a film like Total Recall, like they did in 2012, Robocop, <laughs> like they did in 2014, I'll, I'll try not to spit on my own floor as I say it. You, you, you're remaking a film that doesn't need to be remade. You, you can't bring anything new to the table. The, the original film is such a perfectly you know wrapped up package. There's nothing more to add. I will say with this film... The, the 2011 version. Yes, it's retreading things we've seen before, but it's also giving us new things. The fact that mm-hmm. you've got the blood test in the original. In this version, they work out that if you've got fill-ins or if you've got an earring or, or any sort of metal or artificial component to you, that the thing, when it replicates, you cannot replicate inorganic material. So again, that ties into the end of the 1982 film. When you see Charles sit down, if you look very closely, you can see that he's got his earring in. Yeah. So if you follow the, the 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 logic of the series through, bearing in mind this is a film that um is is very much based on a on a on a very strict internal logic that gives you know more um, evidence to the fact that Charles is human. Yeah, and I just think it 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 offers things like that. So mm-hmm. it's not a pointless retread of the original. It's just unfortunately because I think of studio interference, it's not anywhere near as good as it could have been. I, th- I think it did, as, as Ron just said, though, it had a lot to live up to with, with yeah, Carpenter's mm-hmm. version, you know? You know, one day, God forbid, hopefully when we're long and dead <laughs> in the ground, they will probably remake Jaws. They'll probably have the goal to remake E.T. You know, enough time may I'm have passed I'm surprised that hasn't happened already. I'm well, yeah, you know, there's this talk <laughs> yeah. now of, of, of Amazon um, doing a Lord of the Rings remake, which mm. just fills me with complete disgust. Certain films are worthy of revisiting in the form of a prequel or a remake. Well, I mean, the thing itself is is a remake. So, like, I, I think that's a great case for, like, I, I think especially looking at material that's maybe not quite living up to its potential in its previous forms. You know, if you go and look at the uh, the Hawks 50s version of The Thing from Another World and say, like, okay, there's something here I really like. It's maybe not perfect, but I can build on that. Like, I think sometimes that's the great formula for a remake, saying... 
okay, like there's something here I, I can work with. I can do my own thing. And I, I think that's why the fly comes up a lot in conversations about greatest remakes as well. But, I mean, the prequel, it's such an interesting, like, I, I think that must've been a really fun writing exercise to look at the aftermath of that Norwegian camp and try to reverse engineer a story out of that. Yeah, like, I, I think that's a, one thing it does very well, like you mentioned, but I, I don't know, like, I've seen the, um, the footage of the practical effects they looked great to me like they looked beautiful I, th I thought actually like it's um it, it like it's such a strange choice why they cgi'd over top of a lot of those effects they, they seem to be working well they were really like creative um you know there's the bit on the airplane where it turns out it, it's not the guy who's acting nervous it's the one who's acting calm who's really the thing and he splits in half right down the middle you know the, the showing how they did that practical effect by having somebody like sit in behind them to puppeteer this thing and how the, how the face like it was so creative the effects it's like i i don't understand it yeah i i completely agree man i just don't understand why they overlay less convincing cgi effects i just i just think it's another one of these ridiculous uh, cases of studio interference oh. where it, it's completely just not required and they've got you know insufficient faith in a tried and tested special effects method so yeah, you know, the, the 2011 version, for people who haven't seen it, if you're a big fan of the 1982 version, to a point it is, I think, a valuable sort of companion piece, wouldn't I, you agree? I was really happy that it wasn't a remake. When I first heard that there's going to be another thing, I was like, oh, they're remaking this. And it was that feeling that Hollywood's mm. doing that with everything and how are they going to butcher this? And I didn't feel that. Maybe that was part of the reason why I, I was able to accept it as a, as a prequel. But they kept enough, I think as Sky said, enough elements from the, the questions of what happened in that Norwegian camp when you go there in the Carpenter version. Like, as you said, the axe, the fact that the place is trashed, the creature outside, all of these things, they managed to, to make it work in this uh, 2011 uh, prequel. So guys, just before we start to wrap things up now, obviously this is a film that I think it's quite obvious that the three of us completely love. What other films that you've seen since do you think the thing has heavily influenced? There probably aren't as many films influenced by the thing as say uh, Alien because Alien was a big hit and the thing of course wasn't. Uh, actually, video games like I I played the uh, Dead Space video game. I know that's heavily inspired by the thing. You know, it's sort of like the thing set in the world of Alien. That's kind of how it feels. I'm trying to think what what films sort of capture that. I mean, I'm going to be talking on uh, the wrong reel. It, or it's scheduled anyway to to discuss the hidden with uh, Colin McLaughlin, and I, I think that film's probably inspired by the thing. You have aliens imitating people and you know, flamethrower at the end, and at one point the alien even disguises itself as a dog. So I, th I think that's maybe one, but that's also sort of a film that's maybe I think it was kind of in obscurity for a long time, and it, it's maybe given a little bit of a boost by people excited about uh, Twin Peaks: The Return going back and looking for Kyle McLaughlin roles. Maybe that will explain all of the uh, hidden related tweets that we've seen from you recently. <laughs> sure, oh, I, I think that's the uh, secret answer. Uh, hopefully, that episode works out. I, I think that'll be fun to talk. I think Marcus Pin might be on it too. So, oh, fantastic! 
the, the main two I can think of are the first one wasn't obvious, but be, because I've I've done a, a lot of reading around um, Quentin Tarantino in the last year because I've done a series of articles for Film Eighty Nine and also myself and Steve Amos did a, a Quentin Tarantino episode back last September with Wrong Wheel. Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino says that a lot of the mistrust issues that those characters go through are influenced by John Carpenter's The Thing, which you know is, is one of his favourite films. And as much as you know, that's never anything that struck me about Reservoir Dogs. Certainly Tarantino did his own sort of pseudo-remake of The <laughs> Thing in 2015 with The Hateful Eight. You know, yeah. the, the, the recent... Good timing, actually, because... Um, <laughs> As much as it's it's much later than I expected to do it because I wanted all the Tarantino articles to time with the you know twenty fifth anniversary back last year, but I've only just recently this week published my final article in that, which is a piece on the hateful eight. I go into some detail to sort of describe the parallels between um, that film and the thing. You've got a group of of disparate individuals isolated um, in the middle of nowhere during a raging snowstorm because of the the circumstances of why they're there. Mistrust grows between them, and they you know they come to realize quickly that one or more of them could pose a threat to the others. And the thing that caps it off perfectly is the fact that you've got Ennio Morricone doing the score and actually yeah. reusing a large amount of his unused a new score for the thing in the Hateful Eight, much of which works. It it, just, it fits the film perfectly, even though as far as genre goes, it's not a horror, it's not a science fiction. It's a Western. It's still, you know, the similarities between The Thing and The Hateful Eight, I think, if you go and watch it now with that in mind, you'll see them quite obviously. You can see, and there's mm-hmm. always, as you said, the mention of the distrust between the characters, and not just the distrust, but some of them are not who they who say, they say they are to be. You touched on it with, with the uh, score, the sound, the, the music, that everything that comes across in there is something to hark back to the 1982 Carpenter Thing. Mm-hmm. I mean that's interesting when you hear the unused score you're like it's a little bit more organic sounding the rum bum 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 yeah I, I like that uh, like Carpenter somehow managed to get Ennio Morcone to do a score that sounds like a John Carpenter score and it's great like it's it's fantastic but I know I found a fellow hardcore fan when you can actually you actually know the unused <laughs> score for the thing much like yeah it's you know <laughs> the, the the thing that comes across with me is that that fact that Carpenter went to him and said, "Can you change and tweak this at some point?" I would. Mm. What would you think as the artist that's just done this when Carpenter comes up to you and says, "This it's not what I want exactly. Can mm. you can you tweak and change this?" You know. Yeah. I've always been curious what that collaboration was like because Carpenter usually famously does his own scores so was it a case where he just like really knew what he wanted but you know he's doing a studio film so you need a composer or you know was it a case of him you know because he likes western so much wanting to work with one of his heroes and maybe you know learn from him or collaborate with him like i i don't know i would just be really curious to know you know how well they got along or what that creative process was like because i i don't think there's been much said about it i i've never picked up picked up on anything that suggests they had anything other than a, a good working relationship mm-hmm. and i think uh, you know the final product is a perfect mix of sort of traditional suspense score and and carpenter's typical you know electronic music and it does tie the thing to westerns like it's funny you talking about uh, hateful eight being inspired by the thing because i think the thing is also inspired by westerns in unexpected ways like i mentioned earlier that 
Carpenter was a big, he's a big Howard Hawks fan. And I, I think you can see a lot of like the Hawks Western influence in there. Like, I, I think also John Carpenter said that he like all his films are secretly like remakes of uh, Rio Bravo or something like that. So I think it's fun to look at the thing through the lens of a Western. I always think of that when I watch it, how the thing, it's the you know, the creature, it's like the black hat riding into town and McCready's the loner sheriff who has to pick up his gun. It, like, just that sort of basic dynamic of, you know, the outsider, like, that that's something that you see run through a lot of Westerns, actually, and it, it's interesting to see how the core of that is adapted into a completely different genre. Yes, yeah, a good point you make there, actually. John Carpenter's remade a Howard Hawks film with The Thing, mm-hmm. but... In 1976, when he made uh, Assault on Precinct 13, that is pretty much a remake of another Hawks from Rio Bravo. Right. And I mean, this, this has a lot in common with uh, Assault on Precinct 13. So you can see the through line to Rio Bravo where, you know, again, it, it's like this group of guys sort of shacked up and you have this outside force and the, the tensions that maybe rise to the surface uh, between them, all the, all the little fissures in their relationships get exposed. So, like, I, I think that's, uh, you know, on one level, uh, another genre other than horror and sci-fi that you can look at this film as, even though it's set in Antarctica, like, you know, that the, the landscape shots almost feel like spaghetti western shots of, you know, the, the Spanish desert, the, the, the way he shoots this endless snowscape. It's, you know, a desert when you look at it. So guys, is there, is there anything else now? I think we've got into, I think as much depth as we reasonably can in a, in a you know an hour and a half, two hour episode. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about John Carpenter's The Thing? I, I think we've gone through as much of it as we can, but there are moments in there that still stick with me that, that as I said, make me cringe. Nowadays, after the amount of times I've watched it, it's not it's not as profound as people may think. With it, there's there's little elements where the creature is just it's sitting on a table and there's just blood leaking from this table mm. and, and you know it's still still yeah. alive. That still sticks with me and makes me send a shiver down my spine. The bit where Windows is is cutting cutting his thumb. Yeah. Of, of all the of all the fingers to <laughs> yeah. cut, it's the thumb and it just winds yeah. me up a little it's bit, the, you know. The, the pad it's, of the thumb with a with a, a curved scalpel. It, yeah. It's just something just not nice. Everything works in this film for me in terms of how it's pieced together. As you just said, the the synth tones that mm. that are there for a purpose they're there to enhance the scene um and, and make you it makes me feel uncomfortable slightly yeah. uncomfortable when you hear these tones but you don't know why and they don't always put them in in a scene where something's about dr- amazing dramatics about to happen it can be a scene where the helicopter's sticking off you hear this tone you're just like oh i just don't want to know what's coming you know i just think everything works for it martin and one one little thing I'll I'll point out to people that I think shows how great of a director John Carpenter is is right before the blood jumps up during the blood test scene, they're like they're using an effects hand. It's it's a special effect prop hand. It's not just in the effects shot. John Carpenter uses that fake hand earlier in previous shots because he wants you to not register it as an effect. <laughs> and like, I, I think most people would, would only try to use a, a, you know, a fake hand in the one shot where they have That's to get right, away with yeah. it. But he's bold enough to put it in plain sight so you don't realize where the effect's going to come from. So I, I think people should watch it again and again because even though it's a film that might make you sick, you'll never get uh, sick of it. <laughs> no, I agree. And, you know, he's he is a master craftsman. He pretty much created the, the, the slasher subgenre of horror with Halloween. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's created 
so many iconic films. It's just unfortunate that across the entirety of his career, most of his truly great films have been concentrated in that sort of 12-year period, I think, between 1976 and, you know, say, 1988. It's just such a shame that he sort of fell out of favour with Hollywood and hasn't really done anything of note from the 90s onwards. I love that this film got made, and despite this, the, how poorly it, it did, the fact that it is this underdog that's triumphed throughout, I suppose, the evolution of VHS to DVD, and it's still getting remade, and it's still getting this recognition today, and has had an impact. Like I said, it was impacting me when I was trying to direct theatre, let alone film, and come up with ideas, but there's so much that this film offers, not just to the standard viewer who wants to be entertained and have a, a million and one questions by the end of a film, which I, I absolutely love in a film, but to people who are trying to, to continue on uh, making film and developing themselves. So guys, I've thoroughly enjoyed discussing this. It's one of my all-time favourite films. If I was to compile a list of my top ten favourite films, there's a chance that the thing would be on that list. It, it's certainly my, you know, my favourite one of my favorite horror films, if if not, you know, if you if you're gonna class it as horror, sci-fi, you know, I I'd say it's it's primarily science fiction, um, with with horror leanings, much like Alien, I would class that as a science fiction film. But I don't think you know that there's any doubt that this is one of the the greatest films ever made. It's great that it it's attained that positive notoriety in recent years. And it's finally now getting the treatment it deserves. You know, you've got companies in in the states like Scream Factory who have paid a large amount of money to to give this film a 4K restoration, and then you've got Arrow Video in the UK who have <laughs> their own tail- computer restoration. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they weren't happy with you know certain um, elements of the color timing of the 2015. On a uh, bad edition, though, they've they've done well. Yeah, the, the Scream Factory uh, version is a, is a great edition, but you know the Arrow version for me is is the more accurate representation of the original version of the film that I, I recall with you know more of the steely blues as opposed to yeah. the magentas of, of the other version but just goes to show that there's a demand out there for the thing and I think it was within a few hours when Arrow put um, the, the, the limited steel book and the limited edition version up for sale it, it just went up sold out straight away so it just goes to show that there's a huge market out there for this film like you said, Martin, at the beginning of, of the episode, you've owned this on several formats. I'm exactly the same. It's a film that I will always love. I'll always go back to and watch. Matt, you said exactly yeah. the same. I think you yeah. said to me before we recorded, you watched the thing at least once a year. Is that once right? Once a year, at least, yeah. yeah. I, I, can't, I can't think of a better film to pick as the first of our sort of retrospective episodes. You know, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, Matt. Again, you're the perfect person to, to pick to have on, you know, talking about it. You know, it is your favourite film. Oh, thank you for having uh, me. And Martin, thank you so much for coming on and for pitching the idea you know, originally martin um, me and martin were going to do this as an episode of flixwise canada martin's podcast he's very kindly given me the the option to do it as you know the first retrospective film 89 episode so for that martin i'm incredibly grateful thank you for coming on board i'm really looking forward to your next flixwise canada episodes and also your appearances on wrong real uh, fantastic thank you for having me on this was great conversation i feel like i've just been holding inside me for months yeah. <laughs> so i'm really glad to be here and hopefully we can do uh, another one before too long so thank you we certainly will martin where can people find you on social media uh, the best place to look is at movie kessler on twitter and you can hear much more of me over on flixwise.com and matt <laughs> 
yeah. Uh, the, the reason the reason Matt is laughing. Um, I don't think Matt, you've got a Twitter account. Is that uh, right? Oh well, I don't even know what the internet is, man. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> Matt is. He's in a sort of transitionary period when it comes to technology. Uh, you had to bring this up. Yeah, I had to bring this up. Um, his, his computer still looks like the cell test in the thing. Uh, it is. It's it like is an Apple IIe. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> I'm sure when when Matt um, finally joins Twitter, uh, I'll, I'll I'll promote his account and, and get it out there. But unfortunately, for the moment, if you want to contact Matt, um, uh, it's through Sky via Sky. Yeah, here. Contact him via me, and I'll send a message via Carrier Pigeon, or you know, we'll just get a very long piece of string with two plastic cups on the end. But Martin, thank you very much. I thank you. Can't wait to um, do another show with you. And guys, uh, take care. And just remember, the person next to you may not be all that they appear to be. Bye for now.